Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And because that's true, let's open our Bibles to John chapter 1, just one verse. John chapter 1, verse 14 is our text this morning. We're taking a short break through our series through Hebrews, which we'll pick up in the next year to look at on this Sunday before Christmas morning, the beautiful truth of the incarnation. I'm just going to read one verse and then from this one verse attempt to sufficiently, faithfully explain to you the most inscrutable, beautiful, mysterious truth in all the universe, the incarnation of God the Son. So let me read John chapter 1, verse 14. A couple years ago, we worked through this gospel, and I'm just going to zero in on verse 14 of this passage that is a beautiful opening to John's gospel, which I commend that you read all of this opening chapter. But let me read verse 14. And the Word, notice that's a capital W referring to Jesus, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. And uh, I stepped out to uh, sneeze. I've been sneezing about 700 times in the last 24 hours. And so I stepped out to sneeze. I hope I don't sneeze in the next 30 minutes or so. Um, But if Robert mentioned this, I'll mention it again. I'm so thankful to have the children in here. We're going to be talking about Jesus as an incarnate babe. And so if they're squiggling and crying and sneezing, uh, that's okay. Let me ask the Lord to help us, even as the kids help us praise God together. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for December 24th, 2023, that you have ordained that we would gather together in this room together, this collection of people. Lord, open our eyes to the beauty of the most mysterious And most important of all miracles, that God became flesh and dwelt among us. I pray that you would change your people and that any that might be in this room this morning that do not know Jesus, Lord, that you and your kindness would appoint this as the day of their salvation and that you would give them a heart to believe. And I pray that you do this all for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, just one verse, but I want to hang my thoughts on this verse. I want to hang my my outline, in a sense, on these two statements, two thoughts about the incarnation. The first is that the incarnation is hard to understand. I think we should admit that up front, and we're going to stare at it for a moment. So first, first thought is that the incarnation is hard to understand. But then the second thought is, is that by the incarnation, we can understand everything. So the first thought is, is that the incarnation is, is hard to understand, but secondly, it's through the incarnation, because of the incarnation, by the incarnation, that we can understand this world around us. So this first thought here in John chapter 1, verse 14, this dominating thought of the beginning chapter of John, that the Word, God the Son, became flesh and dwelt among us. 
What a magnificent, glorious truth just wrapped into half a sentence there. It's a glorious truth. In fact, it's impossible to overstate, I think, the, the importance of the incarnation to the message of the Bible and to the Christian faith. There's an inscrutability to it. There's a, a certain unknowability to it. Certainly we can know enough that we need to know about the incarnation to believe it and trust in it. But it's not like we know all of the truth of the incarnation exhaustively. C.S. Lewis, the famous British uh, thinker and writer, wrote, he said about this incarnation, he said, it is the central miracle asserted by Christians. He said that every other miracle in the Bible prepares for it, exhibits it, or results from it. That's quite a statement. G.I. Packer, who I think was a much better theologian, than C.S. Lewis said about the incarnation in his famous book, Knowing God, that it is the supreme mystery and the most, think about this, the most staggering claim of Christianity. Now that's a man who knows what he's talking about when he's talking about the Bible. And J.I. Packer says that this truth that we just read in verse 14, that the word, that the Son of God became flesh and dwelt among us is the most staggering claim of Christianity. Now, what does Scripture say about the Incarnation? Well, let's, zero, let's step back a little bit and just make a couple comments about what Scripture does and doesn't say. Scripture doesn't give us much deep detail about the Incarnation, but it does give us sufficient detail. And I think that's very important for us to understand. In just a moment, I'm going to read a few verses that, that orient us to this truth and tell us all that we need to know. But the scripture just assumes its authority. It just states this truth as fact. It doesn't have this burden that sometimes we feel to explain everything to the minutest detail. And this is very important because the scriptures have a kind of inherent authority to them, not a kind of, but a, a clear authority to them from God. I think we see this at the beginning of the Bible. The Bible just assumes that God is God and that he is pre, he's eternal and that everything comes from God. It starts off by saying that God spoke and he created the universe. There's this great theological term called ex nihilo, which is Latin for out of nothing. It means that God just did it. It doesn't really offer much philosophical rationale at all. It doesn't give us any apologetics for that. It just starts by assuming the godness, the completeness, the authority of God, the preexistent, eternal, never started, never ending, no start, no beginning God who creates everything out of nothing. And with that same authority, the scriptures speak of the incarnation, the, the becoming man of God. Listen to what scripture says. It begins early on in Genesis chapter 3. We see the incarnation that Jesus, God the Son, would become man. We see that early on in the third chapter, right after the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. This is what God says to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now at this moment, that statement about the incarnation is just a shadow. It's not really telling us much. But that shadow 
that promise of an offspring of this woman, a child, a man from this woman, who will crush the head of the serpent, even though the serpent will bruise him for a time, is a, it's a shadow, it's a promise. It, it's, a, it's a kind of drop pointing us to the incarnation that will come. And then we see it in Matthew chapter 1. Robert's been teaching a class on Matthew 1 and 2, which you can find on our podcast, and we'll read from this a bit tonight. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 and 20, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Again, note the lack of detail, just the clear statement of fact. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as she considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph... Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for listen to this, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. There's this immaculate, miraculous, miraculous conception of Jesus in the womb of Mary, and there's very little detail given by the Holy Spirit in the scriptures as to how exactly that happens. It just tells us this is the case. In Luke chapter 1, verse 35 We see it repeated in another gospel from the angel. And the angel answered her. This is speaking to Mary. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So here we have this announcement of the miracle of the incarnation. Now, we might be left with lots of questions. We could ask for more detail. But the scripture gives us everything we need to know. It is an inscrutable but clear, glorious miracle that the scripture gives us. The virgin birth of Jesus becoming God the Son, the eternal Son of God, becoming a man. Now let me pause to say that if we have anybody in this room, and I hope we do, that maybe wrestling with the Christian faith, or you're not yet a believer, or maybe you just came with a family member, And maybe one of the obstacles for you in Christianity is the miraculous claims of Christianity. And maybe even something like the virgin birth is a bit of a stumbling block for you. And you think, well, how how can that be? That just doesn't seem to square with rationality and science. You know, there has to be a kind of cause behind everything. How could that happen? Well, the Scripture is telling us here that it is a miracle. It's the cause of the agency of the Holy Spirit conceiving God the Son becoming a man in the womb of this virgin Mary. I read something a a couple weeks ago about the virgin birth, and I think it was meant to be uh, maybe a little pithy, uh, but I don't mean this to be sort of sarcastic, but it was an an evangelistic statement, kind of getting people to think about it, and it says, you know, the believer and the atheist both believe in a virgin birth. The believer believes in the virgin birth of Christ in the womb of Mary, and the atheist believes in the virgin birth of the universe, sort of out of nothing. And I, and I offer that to you to, to not be sort of pithy or smart-alecky, although admittedly I have a little bit of that in me. <laughs> I do. You guys know that. But sometimes this objection against a virgin birth or the incarnation is that, that just, it's, it's just a miracle that you need to sort of have blind faith to accept. Well, friends, let's just put ourselves in the place of the creature here. We are finite beings. 
and all of us, whether we believe in just sort of some cosmic bang that started everything with no, no thoughtful design or intention behind it, or whether we believe in the personalness of a holy God who has created everything for his glory, it all takes faith. And I would submit that if we think about it and stare about it, the plausibility, the plausibility of the incarnation, the plausibility of God, this good and personal God creating everything, actually in a way takes less blind faith than to believe that everything came out of nothing. And so the Bible continues giving us pointers to the incarnation. It says in Galatians chapter 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Romans chapter 8, verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. When it says in the likeness of sinful flesh, it doesn't mean that Jesus was sinful in any way, but that he, be, he, he took on a body like ours. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 through 18, which we'll read again in just a moment. It says, therefore, speaking of Jesus in his incarnation, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Beautiful passage on the incarnation. And finally, Hebrews 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Now this beautiful line about the incarnation. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. In other words, God became a man and felt everything that we feel. These scriptures and this truth of the incarnation has caused Christians through the centuries to wrestle with this great truth and to try and put it together in statements that sort of clarify for us because if it is the most important, the supreme mystery, the most staggering claim, the central miracle of the Bible as asserted by Lewis and Packer, then Christians rightly have struggled with how to understand it and put it together in a, in a confession that guides the life and theology and doctrine of the church. And in A.D. 451, these Christians got together and hammered out this thing called the Chalcedonian Creed, which is still in use today in the church. And this is what, listen now, this language is fun. But listen to this because this is beautiful language and this is what Christians have believed for centuries about Jesus and his incarnation. The first few sentences say, Chalcedonian Creed, written in 451. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man. So there's an important phrase that Jesus is truly God and truly man. He's a hundred percent God and always has been. And he in his incarnation is a hundred percent man. And then it continues. This is the beautiful language. Listen to this. To be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, 
the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, does that make it utterly clear to you, right, right? Well, you might think, well, Brad, whoa, that was a bit much for me. Come on, it's Christmas Eve morning. Easy killer. Here's what this is saying. You can get this. You can get this. And upon this, truth is built the whole message of the gospel. It's saying that Jesus, and here's the miracle. It's saying that Jesus has two natures. His nature as God and his nature as man in the incarnation. And they're not confused. They don't mingle together. They're, they're indivisible. They're inseparable. Th these two natures, though, exist in one person. And we might say, well, how does that work? That's hard to explain. Yes. The incarnation is hard to understand. But we can see it. And we can believe it. And on its truth, we can rest our hope, as we'll see in just a moment. So yes, let's admit that the incarnation, let's not just breeze past it as a kind of folklore for the feels during Christmas morning. Upon the rock of this truth is built the whole Christian faith. But let's admit that we're standing on an inexhaustive, an inscrutable, a mysterious mountain of truth, a staggering claim, and that should not trouble us. It should encourage us because it's further proof that God is God and we are not. Yes, it may puzzle us. It may even offend our sensibilities at times. But therein lies the glory and the beauty and the wonder of the staggering claim that God has become a man like us. So the incarnation is hard to understand. But secondly, the incarnation helps us understand everything. And I just have two subpoints, and then we'll pray and sing some more songs. By the incarnation, it helps us understand everything. The first way that the incarnation helps us understand everything is it, is it kind of makes sense, I think. If you think about with me, let me try and explain this. It makes sense of the fall. It helps us understand the fall of mankind. What do I mean by that? The Bible early on in Genesis chapter 1 says that we were created in the image of God, that we were meant to be his stewards on this earth and that human beings have such amazing capacity. In fact, one writer said that if we, if we could see the glory, even a fallen man, if we could kind of pull back the veil and see in the heavenlies the glory of fellow human beings, we would be so amazed at the glory of fellow human beings that we would even be tempted to worship one another. That's a, a kind of... Uh, a description of how glorious man is, not because man in himself is glorious, but because man has been made to be an image bearer of God. But yet we see that this fall has, has ruined everything. It's, it's, it's made man, every aspect of his glory has been tainted and it's, 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 been, it's, it's been spoiled with sin. 
And so we look around the world and we see a world that's falling apart, but yet we see mankind and humanity able to do amazing things even in the midst of the fall. And this is a kind of echo of the glory of what it means to be a person and what it means to be created in the image of God and what Jesus has come and taken on to redeem the the beauty of the glory of mankind, even in its fall, speaks to to the necessity of Jesus actually becoming like us to redeem us. I mean, just think about how one, I mean, things that we just take for granted. We just take them for granted. You know, guys, I've mentioned it before just about, you know, I'm from California, and I still can't get over this. Every time I fly anywhere, you're getting in a metal tube, and you're shooting yourself. Well, somebody's doing it for you, but you're shooting yourself up in the air and you're landing and, and we're complaining because we don't have enough leg room. <laughs> or, or you start a car, and I don't know anything about cars. I don't know. I, don't, I know where to put the key and where to put the gas thing. Uh, and if my car breaks down, I call Paul Fincher and he tells me what I should do. <laughs> but you, you stick a little piece of metal inside a little thing and you turn it and something fires and get who came up with that i mean it wasn't that long ago in civilization that we were riding around on horses what's that owe to it owes to the glory of god in the creation of mankind we can do amazing things you walk by a factory you drive by something and you see all these incredible results of the industrial revolution you see we have lights we have right now there are people that are homebound or deployed in the military that are able to watch us something is happening with that that camera and it's taking my picture and it's it's shooting it up into an air in the air and some satellite up there is grabbing it and then it's shooting it down into somebody else's computer set and we're just what's that What is that owing to? It's owing to the image of God even in fallen man. The glory of what it means to be a human is stunning. It's stunning. And the fact that as glorious as we are, that God would have to become a man in order to rescue it is a kind of evidence of the necessity of the incarnation and the glory of God's intention for mankind. Just think about that. And then, and then think about that. I try to do this often. Think about that in regard to the person or the people or the socioeconomic group or the group of people around you that you find most irritating and most hard to love and see them through the lens, even though they may deserve some sort of justice here in this life, try and see them through the lens of the image of God in all people. It's glorious. And the incarnation helps us see that because of the glory of God and the necessity of the incarnation, which then, secondly, it helps us understand salvation. If we are made so gloriously in the image of God and if the fall is so spectacular that we have lost our ability to commune with God because of sin, because we are by nature now sinners, because we cannot do 
anything to save ourselves. The scripture says that it was fitting, that the only way that it could happen was for God the Son to become man. Let me read to you from Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 10. I know we've been working through Hebrews, but let me take us back because I think this is one of the most important passages on the incarnation and the purpose of the incarnation and the necessity of the incarnation and the result of the incarnation in our salvation in all of the Bible. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. It says, For it was fitting that he, and that fitting, it's another way of saying it was necessary. It had to be this way. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, I think that's speaking to God, the Father in this case, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Friends, there's so much theology in verse 10 about the incarnation and the necessity of the incarnation in salvation that it's staggering. I want you to just Think about this sentence slowly, verse 10 again, for it's fitting. It's not like God is somehow bound to some sort of absolute law outside of himself, but God has decided by his decree that this is the way it's going to be. He's going to create a world where he's going to make mankind with such amazing dignity, and he's going to allow that mankind to fall so that he could bring glory to himself by rescuing a great multitude of that mankind from their sin, from their inability, through God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, becoming like them. And that's what's happening in the first part of verse 10. He's saying, it's fitting that God would do this for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory. In other words, the the redeeming of people out of their sin and fallenness into heaven all the way home should make, so it's the Father doing something to the Son, should make the founder of their salvation, speaking of Jesus, perfect through suffering. Well, how does that which is perfect and has been perfect from the beginning, no beginning, no end, actually become perfect because he actually had to become a man to actually accomplish the salvation in the flesh as an incarnate person to bear the suffering that should have been ours on the cross. Verse 10 has got some juice. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source meaning we're all humans. God became a human. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. So the incarnation, one of the beautiful truths of the incarnation is that Jesus is not distant from us. He loves us. He takes on our flesh. He sympathizes with us. He tastes everything that we taste, yet without sin, and he puts his arm around us even in the most embarrassing and deepest moments of our lives, and he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. So this is actually, I don't have time to do this, but I did this back when we looked at Hebrews 2 a couple months ago. This is the writer of Hebrews quoting a psalm, which is David singing to God, and he's taking this psalm, 
and he's actually putting it in the mouth of Jesus. And so it's as if Jesus has come down from heaven in the incarnation. He's come out of the choir loft of heaven. He's come down into the muck of the fallen congregation. He puts his arm around the people of God that he has redeemed, and he sings back with them to God. And this is Jesus the Son in the incarnate state, because of what he's done on the cross, singing back to the Father about those whom he has saved. Verse 12, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. That's what's happening in the incarnation. God comes to us, puts his arm around us, and the son sings back to the father saying, I got them, father. I got them. They're mine. We're coming home. Since therefore children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You know what? Even Jesus had allergies and sneeze, and I praise God for that. Excuse me. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. That's people like us who have flesh. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Listen to this. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. We spend a lot of time, have spent a lot of time over the years talking about the truth of propitiation. That Jesus would bear our sins on the cross, take away our guilt, take away our punishment, and turn it into favor. The, the active obedience of Christ in his humanity, obeying God for us in our stead, and the passive obedience of Christ on the cross, bearing our sin in our stead, removing our guilt, and giving us his righteousness, that's propitiation, and it all, it all rests on the incarnation of Jesus, the Son of God. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able. He is able because he's a man. He is able to help those who are being tempted. So the incarnation helps us understand everything. It helps us understand the fall, and it helps us understand salvation. Friends, do not neglect. Don't make the incarnation merely something cute. It is the most glorious of all of truths in the Bible. And upon it rests all of our faith. Listen to what Augustine says as I conclude. Augustine was an early church father. And all Christianity is divided into two types of people those who pronounce Augustine's name Augustine and those who pronounce his name Augustine. Find yourself in either camp, you're still a believer, I think. This is what Augie said about this beautiful truth. Man's maker was made man, that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on his journey, 
that the truth might be accused of false witness. The teacher be beaten with whips. The foundation be suspended on wood. That strength might grow weak. That the healer might be wounded. That life might die. And if I could add to Augustine's word that death would finally die and life would reign forever because of the incarnation. Let me pray. Lord, as we prepare now to sing in response, as we prepare to celebrate tonight together as families and tomorrow, some of us with great joy, some of us with sadness, mixed with joy, I pray that the overriding, all-consuming beauty of the truth of the Incarnation would be the foundation upon which we stand and worship and celebrate and eat and drink and enjoy one another's company over these next few days. Lord, without the becoming of a man, the truly madness of Jesus, we would have no hope. May that glorious truth actually touch down in our lives. May, may the person struggling with sin know that Jesus knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust and he comes to save. He comes to the sinner trapped in the ditch. And he's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters if we will turn from our sin and trust in him. He identifies with our weaknesses. He sympathizes with us. And he's come to us to rescue us, to make us like him. Lord, would that truth ring in the hearts of the people in this church and all those that are hearing it this Christmas season? And would we sing like we believe that? In Jesus' name, amen.